indexing is a wonderful way of getting above average returns by doing a great deal less work, having a great deal less worry, and no reason to be nervous. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. We've got a real treat for you in this episode, and if I sound a little starstruck during the interview, it's because I was. Back when I started my journey to learn as much as I could about index investing, there were a few books that had a lasting impact on me, and one of these was called Winning the Losers Game by Charles Ellis. The first edition of this book was published in 2002, but the roots of it stretch much further back uh, to an earlier article called The Loser's Game that Mr. Ellis had written in the Financial Analyst's Journal. Now, to understand the title of the book and the article, consider two of the world's best tennis players facing off against each other. Ellis wrote in the article, in a match like this, the ultimate outcome is determined by the actions of the winner. Victory is due to winning more points than the opponent wins. Now, compare this to a tennis match played between two amateurs. Now, he wrote, Brilliant shots, long and exciting rallies, and seemingly miraculous recoveries are few and far between. On the other hand, the ball is fairly often hit into the net or out of bounds, and double faults at service are not uncommon. The amateur duffer seldom beats his opponent, but he beats himself all the time. So in other words, Professional tennis is a winner's game, but amateur tennis is a loser's game, and the way to win a loser's game is simply to make fewer mistakes. Now, Ellis's article was aimed at institutional money managers, and he went on to argue that investing may have been a winner's game before the 1960s, but it wasn't any longer. So he wrote, the disagreeable numbers from performance measurement firms say there are no managers whose past performance promises that they will outperform the market in the future. Looking backward, the evidence is deeply disturbing. 85% of professionally managed funds underperformed the S&P 500 during the past 10 years. Most money managers have been losing the money game, and they know it, even if they could not admit it publicly. And then he went on, if you can't beat the market, you certainly should consider joining it. An index fund is one way. Now, if you're a committed index investor, this might not sound particularly surprising. I mean, we know that the evidence shows most active investors underperform their benchmarks and that index funds will beat most of them over the long term. But what if I told you that Charles Ellis published this article 42 years ago, in the summer of 1975, a few months before the first index fund was even launched by Vanguard? Now, in the decades since then, Charles Ellis has written 16 books, the most recent of which is called The Index Revolution. And one of the recurrent themes in this new book is that surprisingly little has changed in the financial industry since the 1960s and 1970s. I had the great privilege of being able to speak with Mr. Ellis recently about the book and about his long and brilliant career. Now, he is not only a giant in the history of index investing, he's also a true gentleman, as you will hear in our discussion. Mr. Ellis, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a real privilege to have you. A pleasure to be with you. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your early career and uh, a fun anecdote that you shared at the beginning of the book. Uh, you described how you were too young to take the third CFA exam in 1968, or at least that's what they told you. And then you got a bit of a surprise when you saw the actual exam. So can you just share that story with us? 
Sure. You know, whenever you're told you can't do something, you kind of pay attention to what it's all about. And so I was looking forward to finding out what was it that was so difficult about the exam question. This is the third of three different one-a-year exams. And I was kind of amused because it was a one-question question. Please read the following article and comment. And it just happened to be an article that I had written. And I love the irony of it. Yeah, it's uh, well, and you had um, uh, it was interesting to read the book to see just sort of how back when your career started, the investment community was really so much different than it is today, not just with things like the CFA uh, exams, which were, you know, very uh, new at that point. It was a new designation. But one of the really interesting things was how institutional investors and academics and just didn't have the data or the computing power to compare fund performance the way that we do today and the way that we take for granted today. And then these you describe in the book how the these services started to appear in the late 60s and early 70s. And can you talk a little bit about how these new comparison tools started to change the discussion? Well, as the data came out more and more carefully where your fund, your pension fund, for example, would be compared with other pension funds of similar size, there was an increasing interest in how am I doing compared to how others are doing and how am I doing compared to the market. And the data was showing increasingly that the investment council firms, typically manned by younger people who were deeply immersed in the working relationship with the research firms in the securities industry, were actually doing a better job than the well-established and most experienced investment organizations. And that really startled people to find out that these small little new firms had only been in business for five years or ten years were actually doing a better job than organizations had been in business for 50 or 100 years. And they started looking at why shouldn't we go with these younger firms? If we do, because they are doing better than the market by two or three or even 400 basis points, that would reduce the cost that we have to report on our profit and loss statement. That would increase our earnings, so we would have higher earnings. That's a really sensible thing for us to be doing. So there was quite a flood of money moving away from insurance companies towards banks in the 40s, and then surging money moving away from insurance companies and banks towards investment council firms right through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it really revolutionized institutional investing from relatively staid, blue-chip oriented, because they all came out of the personal trust business, laddered maturities in bonds, not trading at all, buy and hold stocks because you want to avoid capital gains taxes. And when they got in competition with organizations that had 50, 75, 100% turnover and very aggressively trying to capture opportunities in the markets, it was a very unfair competitive situation. And the small firms without capital, without major reputations, all of a sudden started becoming quite popular, famous, well-regarded, and they kept delivering superior returns. So the banks really lost a lot because they were underperforming what could have been accomplished. So the interesting thing, too, though, was one of the things that struck me when reading the book was how little some of the attitudes seem to have changed since that period. You know, um, you discuss, for example, the 
tendency of academics and practitioners in the industry to see the world and interpret the data in very different ways, right? So, I mean, it seems to me the evidence has been clear for decades that, you know, most active funds will underperform. There's very little dispute about that. And yet within the industry, people just behave as though that wasn't an actual truth. They think the data applies to everyone except them. Well, there's complications that are worth paying attention to. One is people who are really working hard at something and are very good at the work and have tremendous resources available to them and are highly competitive individuals tend to see themselves very favorably. People who are not involved at all and just look at the numbers tend to be a little bit less romantic and maybe more sardonic or objective in their evaluations. And it was a really important separation. C.P. Snow wrote a wonderful book about the two cultures, and one culture was the scientific culture, and the other culture was the political culture, social culture. And they really couldn't agree on things, a little bit like global warming. Scientists have had an easier time coming to accept that reality than many people who are not involved in science. And so you get major arguments back and forth. And there has been quite a lot of, I regret to say, self-serving, certainly not fact-founded, but emotionally pleasing commitment on behalf of those who call themselves active managers. And this would be organizations that have 50, 75, even 100% turnover in their portfolios and believe that that's a really important pathway for better rate of return. They advertise that sort of thing. You'll see ads, almost every newspaper financial section will have ads of that sort. Uh, Financial magazines tend to have ads of that sort. And there's dreadfully heavy-handed data on the other side. For an example, if you take mutual funds, and this would be U.S. organized mutual funds, but the problem is exactly the same in Canada and actually slightly larger because the Canadian mutual fund fees are higher than the U.S. mutual fund fees. If you take actively managed mutual funds, over 80% will underperform the benchmark they set as their target over a 10-year period. Now, funds will advertise that almost half of them beat the market in any one period, 40%, 35%, maybe 30% some years, maybe 45% some other years. But if you look over a longer time period, over 80% fall short of the target they said they were going to go after. Nobody wants to say that out loud, and no one wants to advertise it. And the data on that has only been available for the last two and a half, three years, coming out of SPIVA. It's now possible to see, take 10 years of results, go back to the first year in those 10 years, and everyone who was entering the field as a mutual fund gets counted. Ten years later, quite a few of them have dropped out, been merged away, and disappeared because their investment results were so dreadful. So you don't see them in the advertising that comes out at the end of ten years. But if you track the data over ten years, corrected for the dropouts, you get to over 80% falling short. That's really powerful information. And there's no one in the investment business that wants to share that information. Certainly don't want to discuss it and will tend to say, oh, it can't be true. 
But of course, they're looking at things in the eighth or ninth or tenth year when the f- most of the firms that have failed have already been removed from the group, so those remaining look fine. I, personally, I think it's a little bit like teenage drivers. When I was a driver, if I could have eliminated just one or two, maybe three small imperfections in my driving skills, which left bent fenders, I would have been just fine as a driver. But unfortunately, you have to add those back in. And when you add back in the difficulties in the investment management business, it's a showstopper. Well, that needs uh, leads nicely into the next idea that I wanted to discuss, and that is this metaphor that you have become so closely associated with over the years, and that is this idea of investing as a loser's game. And this um, goes back 40 years now to an article that you wrote in 1975, and then, of course, it was expanded into your book, Winning the Loser's Game. And you revisit it again in the new book. Um, you call investing uh, a game that we can all win because victory doesn't depend, like boxing, on beating others, but like golf, on mastering ourselves. So I wanted to talk to you about how you came up with that metaphor uh, and you know, the fact that most people still don't think of investing in those terms, do they? Not yet. But as they get older and look back on it, they tend to be more and more sure that, yeah, that's basically the reality that we all have to live with. The concept of a loser's game is fun and simple. People who are playing amateur tennis almost always make more mistakes than they want to. They make double faults. They hit the ball in the net. They hit it out of bounds. And if you want to win an amateur game of tennis, all you really have to do is let the other guy make more mistakes. Keep the ball in play. As my father-in-law would say, you get it back three times on every point, you're going to win every set for the rest of your life. Expert players, like the Williams sisters, play a completely different game. It looks the same because it's on the same court, the same rules, they wear the same clothes. But they play a winner's game with perfectly beautiful shots hit very, very hard, right on the line on the left, right on the line on the right, way on the line on the back, short drop shots, back and forth, beautiful shots, one after another after another. The only way to win is to be really substantially better than the other person. But in most of us, 90% of us play a game where all you really have to do is be less bad than the other guy, and you'll come out ahead. So that's a view that can be transported to other fields. It's in politics all over the place. Of course, war is the most violent version of loser's game. And it's also true that investment management is a loser's game for individual investors back in the 70s. Today, with changes and changes and changes and changes, it's become a loser's game even for the professionals. Let me give you a little bit of background on that because it's more perspective because I think it's quite helpful. If you look at the 60s and 70s, candidly, it was almost easy to outperform the market. In the 90s and the first decade of this century, it's been very hard. And on average, professional investors have been able to earn back enough to cover their fees almost so that their clients only lost a modest amount in aggregate. Where we're headed and we're there now is a period during which most individuals and most institutions will be unable to keep up with the market's behavior because the market is being driven by experts all over the world. A couple of characteristics might be helpful. Best I can tell, 
Well, I know that there are 320,000 Bloomberg terminals out in the world. If there are 320,000 terminals, how much, how many people do you have to have working in a unit to justify having a terminal? I'm guessing three, maybe four. Wait a minute. Three times 320,000 is a million people. In 1960, there couldn't have been 5,000 people involved in active investing. Go from 5,000 to 2 million. That's a big change. 1960, nobody had a Bloomberg machine. Now there are 320,000 of them all over the place, all over the world. The transformation that happens when the SEC says that any public company in the United States that gives any factual information to any investor must be certain, certain that that same information is distributed instantaneously to all other investors. Use Twitter if you want to, and there are other devices if you want to, but just be darn sure you distribute that information. You look at the cauldron of factual information that's being generated day after day after day by Wall Street analysts. You know, back 1960, a major firm might have 10 or a dozen analysts who were really charged primarily with finding interesting stocks for the senior partners in the firm for their personal accounts. Now a major firm might have 300 people spread all over the world. Some are demographers, some are economists, some are market technicians, some are experts in this industry, some are experts in that industry, some are experts in that industry, and all of them are experts on individual companies. And that information floods into a worldwide system that gets distributed to everybody all the time. So you get a tremendous change in the nature of the business, and of course, there's one gigantic change that most people way underestimate, and that is if you drop back to 1960, 8 or 9% of trading was done by quote-unquote institutions, most of which were bank trust departments who were dealing only in blue-chip stocks, and they were dealing at nothing like an intensity that we would see institutions doing today. So you've upgraded the intensity of the institutions, and you've gone from 8 or 9% to 50%, 60%, 80%, 90%, we're now very close to 99% of all trading is done by expert professionals who are fully informed with all the devices that the Internet and Bloomberg and so on and so on could make available to them, and they're all informed equally, instantaneously. And in that context, it's very, very unlikely that they will beat the consensus, which is the market, and if they can't beat the market by enough to recover their fees, then the clients are going to be disappointed. And that's exactly what's happening today. My bet, the next 20 years, we'll see even more substantial fractions of active managers underperforming. And a statistician would say to you, look, these are very complex organizations. When you see 10% or 15% outperforming over a 10-year period, that's a just a statistical phenomenon of the wide distribution of the returns. You should see the negative side, how badly underperforming the comparable 10 or 15% are year after year. So I think there's a major fundamental change that has been surging through the securities and investment management industries, and that as those become more and more binding or constricting, the ability for anyone to outperform is going to get tighter and less and less and less, particularly those who are active managers 
with relatively high turnover in their portfolios, drawing upon the same pool of centralized information. I'm quite some, comfortable that some people who, for example, there's a firm that's got almost 100 math PhDs, do I think they could do better? I certainly do. But they're doing things that nobody else is trying to do. And I also believe that relatively small firms with 8, 10, or a dozen individual experienced professionals working with making decisions they intend to hold for, on average, 15 years, because these are smaller companies that they can see how they're going to grow to be larger companies, I can see how they can be very successful. But those who are in the flow and trading a lot, candidly, I think the life that they have had has come to an end. It's interesting because, you know, you've described how it it used to be much easier, you know, to beat the market. It's become so much harder. And yet one of the things that really has changed for the good is that for the average investor, now we have the products. Now we have the ability to just go out and capture market returns in a way that we didn't have in the 70s before the first index funds came out. And yet, most of us seem so unwilling to simply accept that. I mean, it's never been easier to simply capture the returns of the market, and yet it still seems like a hard sell to individual investors. Well, it's a hard sell because, first of all, who would ever like to be described as, here's Charlie, he's average. I mean, the second thing is, here's Charlie, he's passive. The word passive got wrapped around indexing, in a way that's terribly unfair, but it wasn't meant to be unfair. In electronics, if you uh, put a plug into a socket, the socket is called the passive part, and the plug is called the active part. And all people who use the term passive meant was they were thinking from an electrical engineering point of view that passive accepts as opposed to active initiates. That's all they meant. But now people read it and it looks like here's my friend George he's passive that won't work here's a candidate for Prime Minister of Canada he's passive it won't work here's a chief executive candidate passive won't work imagine introducing your spouse as she or he is passive it would be terrible on the ride home from that dinner party I can promise you so passive is an unfortunate negative term second most of us say, I don't want to settle for average. Actually, indexing is way above average, particularly over the longer term. And it's above average in rate of return. It's also above average in confidence that you're going to get a good rate of return and not get hurt by something that happens within an investment firm. And it's beneficial in the sense that you don't have to worry about it. Whereas with active investment management, you obviously have to be watching all the time to be sure that you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there's a lot of interesting phenomena. When I was growing up, and I suspect the same is true of you, my mother read to me time and time again, because I loved it as a story, bedtime story, the little engine that could. And we were all trained when we went to school that if you do your homework and do better and more homework, you'll get better grades. And we were all trained as you go into employment. If you work harder, you'll get promotions. So all of our lives are built around if you work harder, you'll do better. That's often true, but not always true. And indexing is a wonderful way of getting above average returns by doing a great deal less work, having a great deal less worry, and no reason to be nervous. 
other than the overall world is advancing or not. The markets are going up over time. But, you know, people who index tend to be more relaxed about month-to-month changes in the stock market or bond market than those who are active investors. Yeah, and this gets back to the idea of, of the loser's game again. I mean, uh, indexing is often characterized as a strategy where, you know, and I've been said this, you know, you guys do nothing, right? Is if this idea of sticking to a long-term strategy, to a target asset allocation, to rebalance occasionally, to tune out all of the noise and all of the shouting in our ears to, you know, make tactical moves in your portfolio, that is characterized as doing nothing. And yet, it's what allows us to avoid all of those mistakes that sink so many investors. Well, I think you're exactly right, but let's be candid. When you go back to the early 1960s, when I first got involved in investment management, I was a dyed-in-the-wool, absolutely enthusiastic, active investment manager, and I wouldn't have dreamed of doing anything else because it worked so very well. But because it worked, it attracted more people to come into the business. Because it worked and more people came into the business, there was more opportunity for those who provide information to provide information. So they provided more information. There was more opportunity for the computer industry to create really interesting products that would be useful to investment managers. And when Mike Bloomberg came out of Solomon Brothers and created his tiny little business, it was because he knew that there would be a demand. He didn't expect it to be as big as it has become, but he didn't really have that good a... He's developed a capability that's gone way beyond what he knew he could do when he first got started. So all these different things have come together to make it easier and easier and easier for more and more people to come in and try and compete for the same basic opportunity. And as more and more people compete for it, it's harder and harder for any of them to be better than all of them. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you is um, you've been involved now um, as a consultant or an advisor to uh, Wealthfront, which is one of the largest robo-advisors or online advisors in the U.S. Um, this is a model that is starting to catch on in Canada as well. We've got a number of firms that have started up in the last three years or so and are doing their best to gather assets. Um, I wanted to ask you what sort of potential you see in this technology in terms of its ability to improve the plight of investors, and then also what challenges and limitations it might have? Ooh, boy, it's a wide open question. First of all, I do think that the cost of gaining access to basic investment capabilities is higher than it needs to be. And the people who are, and it's typically younger people who are comfortable with technology and comfortable with not seeing someone individually can take advantage of that comfort level and get at much lower cost access to good, solid information and good, solid judgment or advice. And the investment managers that are continuing to be based on individuals doing all of the work have created a cost structure that makes it very hard for them to deliver good value at a low cost, whereas Organizations that start with a technology platform find that they can deliver very good value at remarkably low cost, and the clients see the difference and like it. So I see a considerable expansion of the activity by the current generation, new generation of managers that are 
using advantages of technology to reduce the cost of distribution and communication. And most of us, candidly, don't have all that sophisticated and complicated a set of needs when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s. Uh, assets aren't all that large. Uh, what we really want is plain vanilla services with some reasonable choice, maybe half a dozen different basic choices that will be managed sensibly, that we can count on, and at low cost. It makes an awful lot of sense. So I expect more of that, and I also expect more in the way of response to these advisors coming from those who have mastered the indexing process because they've got every reason to want to extend their market and protect their brand. I think it's a good time for investors getting closer and closer to a really good deal. The sadness is that it means getting closer and closer to a really good deal means you mean getting farther and farther away from an overcharged, overpriced, not very valuable product, and I'm afraid that's been the truth, mm -hmm. become the truth. It wasn't 50 years ago, but it has become that way because the competition is so ferocious. All right. Well, Mr. Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a privilege to speak with you. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it myself. If you're interested in reading the wisdom of Charles Ellis, I would suggest that beginners start with The Elements of Investing, a slim, easy-to-read volume that he co-authored with Burton Malkiel. Uh, more advanced readers, though, should definitely pick up Winning the Losers Game next, and then you can round things out with his new book, The Index Revolution. All of these books are published by Wiley, and I will include links to them on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com. And now it's time for our Ask the Spud segment, where I answer questions from listeners. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Amanda DL. So Amanda, what is today's question? Today's question is from Jacob. He's a DIY investor who is getting started with a taxable account and is looking for some guidance. Jacob writes, I'm currently investing with all ETFs in RSP and TFSA accounts. This year, however, I'll finish paying off my mortgage, so I'll have more surplus and we'll have to start using taxable accounts. I've been reading your blog posts about adjusted cost base, and they're helpful, but it sounds like a pain to track and calculate. I'd consider paying some extra fees for help with this. What options do I have? Okay, thanks, Jacob. And let me start by saying congratulations on getting your mortgage paid off. That's a huge milestone. And for the record, I agree with your decision not to invest in taxable accounts until after your debt is gone. Even with rates as low as they are today, I still think it's better to take the risk-free, tax-free return of paying down your mortgage before investing outside of your RSP and TFSA. But with that out of the way, let's get to the question. So first we need to unpack some of the jargon here. Now Jacob referred in his question to tracking the adjusted cost base or ACB of his funds. The adjusted cost base, which is also called the book value, is essentially the amount that you paid for the holding. Now, it's not really important to keep track of this if you're investing in an RSP or a TFSA because there are no tax consequences when you sell the ETFs in these accounts. But in a taxable account, anytime you sell something, you need to report the capital gain or the capital loss on that security. And to do that properly, you need to know the cost base. So let's just use a simple example. If you buy 1,000 shares of an ETF for $10 per share, the book value of the holding is $10,000. 
So if the ETF then rises to $11 per share, it would be worth $11,000. If you sell it at that price, you'd have a capital gain of $1,000 and you would need to report that capital gain on your tax return. Now, if that's all there was to it, keeping track of your ETF's cost base would be pretty easy. But it's often more complicated than that. Um, my colleague Justin Bender and I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called As Easy as ACB, which explained this idea in great detail. And that is what Jacob is referring to in his question. So I'll include a link to this paper and some other resources on the blog in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Now, the reason it can be difficult to track your ACB is that many ETFs uh, especially those that focus on generating cash flow, pay out what's called return of capital. Now, dividend from a stock's interest from a bond, these are true forms of income, but return of capital isn't really the same thing. It's just a portion of your original investment being returned to you. And so for that reason, it's not taxable. But you do need to account for it by subtracting the return of capital payment from the ETF's cost base. So let's use another example. Say you have that ETF holding with a book value of $10,000 and it pays out $500 in return of capital. You don't have to report the $500 as taxable income, but you do need to adjust the cost base of your ETF holding to reflect the fact that you've received this payment. So your new book value would be $9,500. So now if you end up selling the holding for $11,000, your capital gain is $1,500. And if you fail to make the adjustment and you just report the gain as only $1,000 and the good people at the Canada Revenue Agency notice that, they can come after you for not paying the appropriate amount of tax. Now, it can work the other way around too. Sometimes ETFs, for example, realize capital gains inside the fund by selling stocks at a profit over the course of the year. Now, they don't usually pay these capital gains to you in cash. They normally just take the proceeds and reinvest them. And then at the end of the year, they report the capital gains on your T-slip and you have to pay tax on them. But because you didn't actually receive any cash, because that cash was reinvested in the fund, you can adjust the cost base of your ETF upwards to reflect the fact that you've already paid tax on them. So let's continue the same example. If the cost base of your holding is $10,000, the fund reports that there was a reinvested capital gain of $500 during the year, you will get a T-slip reporting that gain and you pay tax on it, but then you can increase your ACB to $10,500. So the benefit here is when you sell the ETF, let's say for $11,000, now your capital gain is only $500 because you've already paid tax on the other $500 gain. And if you don't make that adjustment, then you're going to pay tax twice on the same capital gain. Now, Canada Revenue Agency probably doesn't care if you pay more tax than you need to, but you probably should. Now, if you're super confused by all this, don't worry. It's not easy stuff. And I think it's fair to say that many investors with taxable accounts are not doing this properly, uh, maybe not even at all. And that is really the essence of Jacob's question. I mean, he wants to know, is there some way of avoiding all of this complicated record keeping or maybe paying someone else to do it? Now, your first response might be, you know, shouldn't my brokerage be keeping track of all this? I mean, the answer is maybe, but they're probably not, uh, at least not reliably. I know we've worked with many clients who've transferred their accounts to our firm after investing at online brokerages, and we always double check the book values in taxable accounts when they come over. 
I mean, many are correct, but they're frequently wrong. And whenever you transfer an account from one brokerage to another, sometimes the book values even get lost in transit. And then you've got to comb through all your records and recalculate them. You could probably pay an accountant to do this for you, Jacob. I mean, as long as you keep all of your transaction records, but that's probably not very cost effective. Uh, and no disrespect to accountants, but many of them don't have a lot of experience with these subtleties uh, that are really exclusive to ETFs. And so they might not even do it properly. So I'm going to suggest an excellent option for DIY investors, and that is a website called adjustedcostbase.ca. And Justin and I actually feature this website in our paper on the subject. It's a free site uh, if you do all of the inputs yourself, but then they even offer an excellent premium service for $39 a year. And this is actually a great bargain for ETF investors because the premium service lets you tap into their database and it includes all of the return of capital and reinvested distributions on Canadian ETFs going back several years. So it will adjust for these automatically. All you have to do is put in the uh, buys and sells of the ETF and it looks after the rest. So if you've got a large taxable account with ETFs, I would definitely check this out. It's a bargain. Uh, it's adjustedcostbase.ca. Now, even with a website like that, as Jacob notes, I mean, it's still a fair bit of work to accurately track the cost base of your holdings. So I want to offer a few suggestions for index investors with taxable accounts. You are always going to need to keep good records and do a few calculations, but I'm going to suggest five ways you can make your life a lot easier. So here we go. Number one, consider alternatives to ETFs in a taxable account. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that there's something wrong with ETFs and non-registered accounts. I mean, on the contrary, they're very tax-efficient products. They can be a great choice, but there are some other good products that require a lot less record-keeping. Mutual funds, for example, track your cost base at the fund level. So in most cases, you never have to make any manual adjustments. So if, for example, you happen to be using the TDE series index funds at uh, TD Direct Investing, you will find these are much easier than ETFs in taxable accounts. Uh, they require much less record keeping on your part. Another option to consider if you're holding fixed income in your taxable account is to use GICs instead of a bond ETF. Um, there are some tax-efficient bond ETFs available, but again, you still have to do the work to ensure that the book values are accurate. But one of the benefits of GICs is there are never any capital gains or losses. The only thing you need to do is report the interest that they pay, and you get a T-slip for that, so it's very easy. Number two, keep your ETF holdings as simple as possible. If you're a regular listener or reader, you know I love simplicity in portfolios. This is even more important in a taxable account. So I would encourage you to avoid building a taxable portfolio with nine or 10 ETFs. I mean, you can get plenty of diversification with just two or three, and it will reduce your record keeping considerably. Just as important as the number of ETFs you hold is the type of ETFs that you select. Now, I'm not a big fan of ETFs that use exotic income-oriented strategies anyway, like writing covered calls or these other ones that pump out artificially high yields. Uh, and these are even less appealing in a taxable account because a lot of that quote-unquote income is actually just return of capital. And as we talked about, that is one of the characteristics that make it much harder to track your adjusted cost base. 
On the other hand, if you just use plain vanilla, broad market index ETFs, these tend to pay little or no return of capital. They often have fewer reinvested capital gains as well, and all of that is going to make your bookkeeping more painless. Number three is don't use US-listed ETFs. Now, it's important to remember in Canada, all capital gains and losses have to be reported in Canadian dollars. So if you buy an ETF or a stock in US dollars, you need to keep track of its cost base in Canadian dollars. And that means you need to know the exchange rate on the settlement date of every transaction you make. Now, this is one area where I can tell you online brokerages are just about useless. The onus is entirely on you to keep track of this, and that might mean looking up historical exchange rates on the Bank of Canada's website and so on. So don't inflict this on yourself. Um, a few years ago, the choices for U.S. and international equity ETFs in Canada were not very good, and so there was a pretty good argument for using U.S.-listed ETFs you know, even with the added hassle, but I just don't think that's the case anymore. So I encourage you just use Canadian listed ETFs for all of your taxable holdings and avoid all the complication that foreign currencies are going to bring. Number four, don't use dividend reinvestment plans. I know a lot of investors love these. Uh, a dividend reinvestment plan or a DRIP as it's called is an arrangement that you can have with your brokerage so that an ETF's distributions are paid to you in the form of new shares rather than in cash. So you can only buy whole shares of an ETF, but if we assume, say, that the ETF is trading at $20 a share, it pays a distribution of $102, you get five new shares plus $2 in cash. Now, Drips are great in TFSAs and RRSPs because they keep more of your money invested, they keep your cash balance nice and small, but I don't recommend them in taxable accounts. And the reason is every reinvested dividend increases the ACB of your holding. And if you don't make this adjustment, you're going to pay more tax than you need to. If your ETF is paying monthly distributions, as many of them do these days, that's 12 more transactions a year that you have to keep track of for very little benefit. So just take the dividends in cash, reinvest them once or twice a year when you're adding new money anyway, and you've got to make a couple of trades, and it will be much easier for you. Finally, number five, don't open more than one non-registered account. Now, from time to time, I see investors who have taxable accounts open at more than one brokerage. So an example of this might be an investor who has an advisor who manages part of their portfolio, but then they also have an account at a discount brokerage and they buy some other investments on the side. Now, this can be really problematic if the two accounts hold the same security. So let's say, for example, your advisor bought 1,000 shares of an ETF in your account, and then you bought another 500 in your own discount brokerage account. Now, in the CRA's eyes, you own 1,500 shares of that security. And your cost base is the average cost across both of those accounts. But as you can imagine, I mean, neither of the brokerages is going is to know what the other one is holding. So there's no way that your book value is going to be accurate. And if you or your advisor ends up selling part or all of one of those holdings, I mean, good luck reporting that gain or loss accurately. So... I think it's probably best just to have one taxable investment account, but if you can't avoid that, then at the very least, just make sure you don't hold the same security in more than one account. 
So Jacob, that was a pretty long answer to your question, but I hope these tips were helpful for you and for anyone else who's getting started with non-registered investment accounts. Um, that was a lot of information to throw at you, so I am going to turn this into a blog post so you'll be able to refer to those five strategies uh, a little bit later. So stop by CanadianCouchPotato.com and I'll make sure that blog post is easy for you to find. Thank you, Dan. We're always looking for topics to address in future installments of Ask the Spud. If you've got an investing question that will appeal to a wide range of listeners, send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com, and Dan will do his best to answer it on an upcoming podcast. That's all for episode four. Don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes if you like the podcast, and be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcasting software so you never miss an episode. Our next podcast is going to feature Andrew Hallam, an indexing champion and the author of Millionaire Teacher. We'll see you then.